0: Welcome to the show for sinners and sufferers, giving theology back to the people. Tonight, we're talking about the last days, the end of the world, the apocalypse. What is the millennium? What is a tribulation? Is all of creation coming into submission under Christ or going to hell in a handbasket? Don't get left behind. To discuss all of this and more, I have a special guest, one of my pastors, Trevor Rice Savvy. Nice. I said it right. Is okay. Right? We practiced. We practiced <laughs> saying your name right. And uh, yeah, normally when you have a guest on a podcast, I, I'd list your credentials and hype you up. And, but I don't have any. Well, and I was saying I didn't really <laughs> know if you had any, but uh, I wanted to bring you on because you're someone who I perceive to be very passionate about truth. Um, you, when I ask you questions, you go to the Bible that's where you base these things. You, I, I think you think you're, you seem like a deep thinker. Hmm. You, you've rejected that, that, uh, <laughs> that tag, that label as a deep thinker. But uh, I've also noticed you seem, you're a person who to me seems very empathetic and hmm. encouraging. And that's something that, you know, often the, the people that, seem intellectual and seem well-versed theologically are not renowned for being encouraging or empathetic. So that was something that to me stood out Mm. about you. Um, He's also someone who uh, in previous episodes, I've called out for his hipster haircut and it is looking quite excellent. For those of you watching the video, (laughs) you can see it. Uh, And he writes his sermons on a typewriter, which is how you know he's the real deal and actually I have kind of want a typewriter now Because it does look really cool uh, But yeah, is there anything you would like to give By way of a it? video show? Who are you? Did you go to school? Uh, I did actually go to school um, I went to uh,
1: Canadian Bible College As if it was the only one But that's what we used to say Like mm-hmm. it's the only one uh, Way back in 92 to 98 So I squeezed a four year degree into eight years uh, met my wife there. Where was that? It's, it was in Regina. Regina at the time. Okay. It's since moved to Calgary and become Ambrose. Ah. Um, took a, I think it was a youth ministry degree. I think that's um, what I did too. Yeah, it was. I, I excelled. Um, to the point of a 2.1 or a 2.2 <laughs> GPA, so uh, mostly because I never handed anything in on time. Yeah, um, but often was able to uh, kind of articulate what what I thought. Um, but grew to love through my internship just the idea of preaching, and so uh, obviously I am a, a sinner and a sufferer, saved by grace. There mm-hmm. you go for your. See what I did there? Yeah. No, that's Um, good. (laughs) Appreciate that. Uh, But through my internship, uh, just really thirsted to learn how to preach and to preach the word. I felt we needed uh, good preachers of the word. I wouldn't say I understood at all at that point gospel preaching. That happened Mm -hmm. about, I would say now, almost halfway through my ministry life, unfortunately, Um, I don't think I misunderstood the gospel in terms of its content. I think I misunderstood it in terms of its life application. And so in about 2006, rediscovered uh, the gospel as not just the entryway into the Christian life, but as the way to live the Christian life as Mm. Colossians would express it. And it changed a lot of things. The gospel felt very fresh. I don't think that's when I became a Christian, but it sure felt like it viscerally. So, uh, that's kind of my ministry life. Um, I tend to be a little bit bookish. Um, Mm -hmm. I like books. Uh, most of these I have not read. Um, some of them I've (laughs) read twice. That's what my father-in-law used to say. Have you read all those books? Some Mm -hmm. of them twice. Some of them I haven't even opened. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I'm slowly paring them back. I've read parts of every single one of these books. Um, but, That's probably where I would place myself, not necessarily a deep thinker, but I do enjoy uh, deep thinking. What I Mm -hmm. don't enjoy is deep thinking that's purposefully camouflaged from um, kind of reality or language that's used to distance yourself intellectually. I've always really hated that. Mm -hmm. And so I tend... To like deep ideas, but I really like deep ideas that are pared down and understandable um, because I I can't really understand them unless put in plain language. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like to think deeply about things. I like, uh, I'm I'm a curious person by nature um, and that kind of shows up in a lot of different ways. Um, I am married to my beautiful wife, Leslie, for 22 years, very happily married. I have two beautiful girls, 19 and 14. They both love Jesus, something that I'm more and more thankful for uh, every day. And hobby-wise, I love to fly fish. I live two blocks from the greatest river that runs through a city in the world. Um, I do like the Boston Celtics and the game of football. Seahawks and the Stampeders would be my football teams. And um, I guess I like to smoke my pipe. Yeah. And, and, and my, my typewriter is, is, in true hipster fashion, I liked it before I knew it was actually cool. So uh, it actually came from me wanting to use a typewriter app. Mm-hmm. That then I I said, well, I wonder if an actual typewriter would work because even in an app, it's still on a computer and you can still erase. Yeah. And so I tried it. And what I loved about it was it makes you think a little more deeply about what you're saying because you don't don't type and erase Mm -hmm. like you normally do on a computer. Um, Plus you have to spend time rewriting which all writers will say that's the only way to make your writing better. So there are legitimate reasons, the last one being ADHDers. Um there's really only one thing you can do on a typewriter and yeah. that is write. And so I needed that. So that combination kind of drew me to typewriters and then 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 my curiosity just made me collect typewriters. Yeah. Anyways,
0: that's what's kind of like Drew me to the idea too when you were saying like you know just a different medium is less distraction because I find I get the most reading done on planes or on the ferry when I lived on the BC coast because I don't have internet I don't have anything else to do might as well read a book and then suddenly I'm a fast reader when I don't have a phone to check. Um, I do want to say you said the best river that runs through a city as a BC not BC born but BC raised boy I have to say the Fraser River I think running through Quinnell is where I grew up, which is called where the rivers meet because the Quinelle River meets the Fraser Yeah, but Fraser the Fraser,
1: Fraser only has sturgeon in it.
0: It doesn't have, like, trout. Eh, I don't know. It's a pretty good river, though. Mm-hmm. And just about everything in BC is named after it. We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> All right. But anyways, I brought you on to talk about eschatology, which is, is the, you know, the end times, the last things, the, the what happens after the right now. Essentially, or debatably, some people would say it is happening right now, right? And uh, it's something that Kyle and I in the past have kind of touched on but didn't want to go too much into because we didn't feel like we could do a like a just representation, maybe. And um, but in that, I've joked that I wanted someone to convert me to post millennialism because they just seem so optimistic, right? It's that's the, it's the, the hopeful future focused, like we're going to yep. win kind of view. And, um, and I think I jokingly said that to you as well. Cause I heard from our other pastor, Aaron, that you were post-millennial and oh, I was really? like, Oh, I want to see, uh, I want to see what he thinks and if he can explain it to me. Cause I like, I think many people had the least understanding of really a post-millennial view, but yeah, I kind of posed it to you, convert me and you immediately opened your Bible and that was the right move to win my <laughs> respect. And cool. we, we had a good conversation and I just thought, you know, I think this would be beneficial for people to hear this, even if you disagree. Like we've said a lot in the podcast, usually about Calvinism. Like if you disagree with us, we love you. You're welcome. Just disagree with us from the Bible. That's what we want is we want you to go back to the Bible have a, a true biblical, thought-out understanding why you believe what you believe. Don't just disagree because you don't like it. And I think having this discussion, even if people disagree with you, with us, um, it'll. I hope that it'll encourage people to think about these things, to ask questions, to go back to scripture to figure out what they believe about, you know, eschatology. And it kind of, uh, like you've you've said off air. The like we we always define it by the millennium, so i don't want to say not just what we believe about the millennium but what we believe about what what God is doing i'll mm-hmm. say that, and that's really that 's what the word apocalypse means isn't it the unveiling mm-hmm. or the uncovering mm-hmm. it's a revelation yeah. of what God is doing but uh before we really get into it I'm sure there are people that have no idea what pre mill a or a mill. Uh, Post mill, like what these things mean, mill short for millennium, yeah. not millennial, like the generation. <laughs> yeah um, But I thought maybe we should just do some quick: what is the millennium? What are these these views? Why are they just defined in relation to the millennium? And then maybe we'll define that, like what's a, what is the tribulation and what is mm-hmm. the rapture? Because those are words that I think will be coming up. But
1: yeah. Um, and it's it's maybe a good time to say, you know we talk we say we're talking about eschatology and then we we break into kind of a discussion about the millennium, which would be similar to saying we're gonna we're gonna break down this album and then only break down one song on the mm-hmm. album. Um, it's too bad that eschatology gets pushed into just descriptions of what we think about the thousand years, which only shows up in Revelation 19 and 20. Uh, so it's a very actually small piece of the big picture, although it is an interesting piece. And I think mm. um, it's an important piece, um, but it's too bad that eschatology gets pushed into that. So when we say eschatology, it's not just that, because yeah. I think heaven, hell, intermediate state, um, immortality of the soul, mm-hmm. um, e- even the, the future kingdom. Uh, all are part of this, you know. Uh, you could split it. There's talking talking about purgatory, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So eschatology is essentially the last things, or or almost even the last age. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, the millennium does primarily get focused in on, and it's it's actually pretty simple, in terms of millennium means a thousand, and so. In Revelation chapter 20, 19 and 20, there is a description, um, I will say at this point, symbolic description mm-hmm. of uh, how Jesus is going to defeat Satan and bring and usher in the very last part of what he's doing in regards to on earth. And there's it, it's kind of a blurry line. Um, but this thousand years is the time when Christ reigns. Um, but it's intermingled with uh, Satan will be bound for those thousand years and then kind of released for mm-hmm. those thousand years. And these uh, particular viewpoints are: we are before those thousand years, premillennium, Yeah, premillennial. Uh, post, we are um, at in the thousand years essentially, and then ah, uh, we don't have a set amount of years or a, as you would say.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a millennial. Um, so I, I would break it down like this the premillennials don't want to get left behind. Um, the post-millennials do. Mm-hmm. And the amillennials won't. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I know, I know it's, think it's so. really oversimplified. I get that. There's, yeah. There's, well, there's and, lots and missing, but. if
0: someone's listening and they hold to a view and they feel like we're unfair, like we're, Sorry, <laughs> but yeah, in, in the pre and post referring to when the second coming happens, is it coming after yes. or before the, the millennium? All would- three
1: views believe that Jesus yeah. is returning. That's yeah. not really debatable.
0: Yeah, like that's pretty blatantly clear. Right. Like that's what as Christians we're all looking forward to is the return of Christ. Uh And it's, it's sort of defining what's happening between them what that's mm-hmm. going to look like what that will it entail in ways but yeah i think pre you know eschatology in general is something where i feel like a lot of christians they either don't think about it yeah or they get, like, way too into it yeah, <laughs> and become, yeah, like, right. almost annoying. And I come from that. Yeah. yeah. And you have people, there's just, like, you sit down and you're like, so how's your week? And they're like, well, waiting for the rapture, yeah, um, yeah. you know, because, you know, it's just, like, that's that's what they're absorbed with. But I think the, probably the majority of Christians just have a really undefined understanding. They might be, like, vaguely pre-mill because they're kind of, like, you know, waiting for the rapture. The rapture can happen. And I grew up, like, thinking, like, any second – Mm -hmm. might be raptured so that was a general understanding and how
1: did that turn out for
0: you i haven't been raptured yet but well i remember you still uh, could be i've kind of talked about uh talked about this before (laughs) living in this fear that i thought if i sinned Mm -hmm. and didn't ask forgiveness for that sin before i was raptured that i was done i was left behind and that was like a fear as i was like yeah, That's what bad if,
1: theology and bad eschatology. Yeah,
0: well, it is just sort of a, like a bad way to live. And I don't think it was intentional for anyone that taught me. I think that's sort of where my mind went with the fantasticals. Yeah. I I had this, this kind of like subconscious fear of one day coming out of my bedroom and my parents are gone. Yep. Yeah. And you'd be left behind style, their clothes are sitting there for some reason. Of course they are. You know, the, all their fillings in a pile or whatever, but... <laughs> And, well, and speaking of Left Behind, I think uh, it's weirdly, and it's not even a great, like, it's vaguely premillennial, but it's not even like a good representation of what premillennialism is. Like, someone who's a studied and educated premillennial yeah. isn't gonna recommend you watch Left Behind for an understanding. Right. But I think it being such a cultural phenomenon, one well, didn't, did you mention there's another one? Someone told me recently there's another movie coming out. Uh, because they like rebooted it. Know. And, uh, but it's such a phenomenon that a lot of people, and I think especially non-Christians think that what Christians believe is just verbatim what happens in the Left Behind series.
1: Right. So there's three views, pre, post, and ah, uh, but there's actually a fourth view, mm-hmm. uh, which is termed dispensational premillennialism. Mm-hmm. And... That is probably the one that I would disagree with the most. Um, But it's also the one that actually seems to be probably what I grew up with. So you didn't, I didn't grow up with Left Behind. That was kind of uh, before my time. But I I did grow up with like A Thief in the Night, Hmm. Um, if you want, like, some bad acting, bad Christian movie. Like it's, they're all available on YouTube. I found myself laughing, uh, in the midst of some of them, um, because essentially, uh, they, they actually scared me to death. So as a six year old, I'm watching this. And one of the movies ends actually with the sound of the guillotine, as as the credits roll or as the screen mm. goes black, is the sound of a guillotine that's going to come down on the head of a Christian? And I was like,
0: "You just brought back a repressed memory." Well, I suddenly I, vividly remember that.
1: Oh, it was it was terrible. Mm. And so, uh, my impression of most of the eschatology that probably even until the last two years that I lived with is that that could potentially be it. Mm. So there's really kind of four views, or I would say like a. Uh, one of the views has a very, um, very, very dogmatic and very, I believe, unfounded in many ways view, dispensational uh, premillennialism. So uh, the the historic premillennialists do not want to be categorized with that viewpoint Mm -hmm. because they don't actually agree at all on so many things. So it's not kind of fair just just to say there are these three views and like pick one. Yeah. Um, that that one actually is uh, a, a, a great aberration historically. In fact, uh, it never even showed up in history until the mid 1800s. Mm. That's when it started to get traction. Um, but it didn't even get traction then. It really only got traction in in the 1900s. Yeah, like that's the only time this shows up.
0: It. For anyone who maybe has been listening to Sinners and Sufferers for a while and you're like, I think I've heard this word dispensation or dispensationalism before. Uh, when we talk about covenant theology and I said, honestly, with how clear covenant theology is in scripture, that dispensationalism would be posed as the the opposite or the o- opposing view of covenant theology to mm. me discredits it already because covenant theology is so clearly biblical. But yes, that is the same right. dispensationalism. It's the same viewpoint right. that that doesn't view covenants as the the sectioning of history, but but dispensations, general periods of time right. that are mildly undefined and greatly disagreed about. Right. And like, yeah. So there's within dispensationalism, there is a a different approach to a premillennial yes. understanding yeah. than than a covenantal, because we have guys like. Like, even though, like, oh, I mean, cards on the table, I'm not premillennial, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of it that's true and a lot of it that challenges me. Um, but there are guys who otherwise agree with me and like virtually everything, but are premillennial who I have a lot of respect for. And then there's dispensational premillennials who are like, I can still have respect for, but we have a lot more disagreement yeah. in general.
1: Yeah. And, and I didn't really know, I thought dispensation was, um, it, it meant age. It actually is a word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the management of a household. Hmm. So this is the way, essentially, God handles his household. And in, I think it's 1830, John Nelson Darby decided there are seven different ways that God manages his household, and he divided them all up. And so part of that... um, Dispensational premillennialism is you have to split apart the church in Israel, which is mm. n- now we've got more problems than just a view of what the millennium is. We've got um, issues with how to understand the promises of Israel for the church. yeah, so like it's 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 hard it's hard to you know just look at this aspect to say it's it's filtered through or it comes. And it affects a lot of different things. And and really, uh, what often doesn't get mentioned is that a lot of these views, uh, the three views, um, are completely affected by how y- you interpret scripture. So the yeah. tools and skills that you use to interpret scripture will probably have you arrive on one of the three views for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And to, to the postmillennial and all millennial are very, very close. There's not actually a lot of difference yeah. between them. Pre is is a little bit different than dispensational. Yeah. Premillennialism is actually kind of way out here. And at the core, the reason why I disagree with it the most is I think they butcher scripture mm. in many of their interpretations. Um, I just don't mm. think it's fair to the original writers. And the context, like some of them, when you read them in context, you're like, there's no way it could mean yeah. that. Anyways.
0: It's interesting, some of the arguments I've heard for dispensationalism, because you mentioned like church and Israel and the separation. And so my understanding um, is that is that Israel exists and is relevant, but as Paul says, we are grafted into the election of the Jews. So the, so the church is attached to Israel in some way. Um, are we now all, collectively the people of God? What does that look like? There's, I, I can see why there's debate. But then I've heard dispensationalists be like, "Well, all of you non-dispensationalists, you believe that Israel just doesn't exist anymore. That God just forgot Israel now that the church exists and it's done away with." And I and it, it, like that's kind of the argument that yeah. I can pitch for dispensationalism. I'm like, well, that's just kind of just strawmanning the opponent. That's not really making a positive argument.
1: It, exactly, anything. and. Uh, like, my first question is, what do you mean by Israel? Yeah, like what? right right there, you know, so what's interesting is that most of the talk about Israel now has to do with the borders and mm-hmm. the ethnicity, but Paul's pretty clear. I mean, I got my my scriptures, my, my big problems are Paul says a a Jew is someone who's a Jew inwardly. Mm-hmm. We are the circumcised, um, and he's speaking actually to Gentiles. Um, and so again, I've kind of been accused. This is, this is a totally different podcast, but the replacement theology yeah. as though it was a bad thing.
0: Um, but that's where it goes. One of the, well, and we'll, we'll get into the, that how we started down the rabbit hole. But one of the things that got me to start looking into covenantal theology is I was doing a a paper in seminary on, uh, I don't remember if it was first or second Peter, but it's when he uses the language like you, like you're the chosen people, you were once called. and it's language that was applied to Israel, and he's now applying it to the church. Right. And I was like, wow, that's so cool how he, he's extending this language that was applied to Israel to the church. And my professor said, this is replacement theology and extremely dangerous. And I went, what's replacement theology? And I Googled it, and then that kind of led me down this rabbit hole of, of actually learning about a bunch of stuff I didn't know about, which is right. kind of what I hope we do on the podcast, is that I hope it leads people down rabbit holes of learning and getting into Scripture. But
1: Well, well that's, that's where I'm persuaded. I'm not persuaded because it's like— yeah, I, I think there's some scary things, but but Galatians three, uh, seven to nine says, "Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham." And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "In you shall all nations be blessed." In other words, those of the old covenant were actually preached the gospel. So I don't I don't know how you could separate these two the way they have been separated. Like I'm, yeah. I'm not actually saying there aren't Jews or there isn't Israel. I'm saying there is something that particularly yeah. Paul and I think Jesus uh, is is saying these promises that were given to the chosen people have become your promises as the church. Hmm. So, yeah. I'm I'm convinced really by yeah. Galatians, Philippians, uh, Hebrews, like that's my problem with kind of the dispensational yeah. premillennialism yeah. is those three books,
0: mm. and even Romans, I would say. Yeah, going a little bit of direction I didn't anticipate. I'm sorry, but no, no, this is good. It's a good conversation, but you you reminded me that something that to me, just like blew my mind that I didn't know for most of my Christian life is is people have asked the question, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? And there's a common misunderstanding that in the Old Testament, you were saved by works and by sacrifice, but in the New Testament, you're saved by grace in Christ. Actually, all through the Old Testament, everyone that was saved in the Old Testament was saved by Christ, by his death. Their sins were paid for on the cross. And we get that in in Hebrews, especially really spells it out that their hope was looking forward and our hope is looking, well, looking back, but kind of like looking present. It's yep. looking at Christ, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. uh, uh, which I, I just think is a, a cool detail and, and might also have some people going like, wait, what? I didn't think of that. But anyways, if there's probably people at this point listening, if we haven't already lost them that are asking, why does this matter? Why do I care? Why is it? it? Why should Christians care? care to work out what we believe about eschatology
1: well it's it's the right question to ask um and it's probably why i didn't uh do any study or didn't think about eschatology at all namely like if that's really how this goes down that i'm raptured that i'm really hoping for this then what good is it going to do me right now? And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the right way of thinking, by the way. Um, however, it's like, it, it, it's not really going to change anything that's happening here. In fact, in some ways, um, the idea that uh, Jesus is going to take me away, that this earth is essentially going to burn up into nothing Left me very hopeless and and in some ways, I didn't want it to be true, even though it was. Um, so to to get to your question of why, I, I think eschatology, as I personally understand, is given to give hope. Mm-hmm. so when when John, the Revelator, writes, he doesn't say, I write these things so that you can be warned and be terrified. Mm-hmm. He says, I write them to give you hope in the midst of extreme suffering. Well, how could that bring hope? Like, th- like that's the end result. If it doesn't bring hope and someone says, well, I hope in the rapture, I was like, but that's not the way it's written. There's there, The whole book of Revelation is written to help people right now mm-hmm. in their lives have hope to face the suffering. Not by saying, like, just put up with it, one day this will all go away. That's not how Revelation is written at all. It's written to say this knowledge of what the future looks like or the description of what's actually happening. Like, that's why I think Revelation is such a great name for the book. It's essentially a way of saying like, okay, we know there's a physical world. We know there's a spiritual world. And just, just once, mm-hmm. Jesus is going to peel back that curtain that divides those two things. And we're going to kind of see what's happening Yeah, behind the scenes, but it's still all to give hope. And so I think it matters because uh, there's a lot of different places in Scripture and you you do see them more, the more you're thinking about eternity. So um, I can say, honestly, I'm very fresh off my youngest brother's death Mm. about three and a half months ago. And so I don't think there's anyone who loses, quote-unquote loses, Uh, at least in this world, um, someone who's close to them that doesn't think about eternity. Mm -hmm. And you don't think it matters until you don't have any hope anymore. I think that's what we found in COVID, didn't we? Yeah. Like that there's so many people that went like, oh no, don't bring God into it. Hope doesn't matter. And then... Then that hope was taken away and they found their lives very fruitless. There's people in my neighborhood that took their own lives because there was nothing else to live for. Mm-hmm. And and so, why eschatology? Paul actually says, um, if in this life only we have Jesus and it reorders our life here, but we don't have the resurrection of the body and eternal life, then we of all the religions have we are to be pitied the most. Yeah. Like translation, if you live your life for Jesus and it changes this life, but it doesn't move into what happens after you die, you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. Why is it important? Because if it's not... Real. If we don't have eschatology, we're wasting our time as Christians. I don't think that's really registered for a lot of Christians. Yeah. Um, and you see it, like even Christians joke about, oh, I don't want to look old. I don't, I don't want to get old. I don't, and, and like, I don't, I don't want to talk about death. It's, it's, mm. it's dark. And I'm like, why? It's only religion, it seems, that's providing a clear picture of, um, uh, making what's happening now, uh, it's changing now, but ultimately it's like, if we don't have something to look forward to, find another religion, Hmm. go for it. So I think it's critical to the hope factor. So if you want hope, I think you should investigate eschatology. Yeah. If you want uh, what you're doing right now to mean something for all eternity... Look at eschatology. If you want a way that can bring you through uh, the loss of a loved one, um, do a deep dive into eschatology. Mm. Like, this stuff actually is given to us not to discourage us, but to br- give us hope, to anchor us when everything around us doesn't seem to appear hopeful. Yeah, That's why.
0: Mm. Yeah. You mentioned... Uh- covid in there and i think for me at the beginning of covid was when i really got into eschatology again because of course Mm -hmm. i learned some of it in bible college and it comes up a little bit in seminary but i was in you know end of 2019 beginning 2020 i was pastoring at a church i was kind of doing like my practicum in my master's degree and i was part of a staff of like Three or four people that had to make this decision do we close our doors right. this Sunday? And it, it was something that it was unreal. And I remember even like a couple of weeks before when I heard there's a pandemic, I, I had this sense I was like, they're going to ask us to close church and not have mm-hmm. services. And it's navigating that. And then we have all these questions. People are like, is this the end of times? Mm-hmm. Is this a sign of the end mm-hmm. of the ages? Is Jesus coming back this year? Is, you know, you had. Uh, there's stuff that we're not allowed to say right now on YouTube about specifically about COVID that, that people were asking questions about, but then it, it caused me to like intuitively, I'm like, no, this is, that isn't the mark of the beast. No, this isn't the end. Um, But I was like, well, intuitively I'm saying this, but intellectually, right. What, how do I explain this? And that's why I started looking into things and things like, well, talking about the, the mark of the beast and that's, I asked you earlier, and we should have double-checked. Revelation 13, 13 14, you I said, is when it, it mentions Mark like, of
1: the Beast. Well, it might be 15, but, 16. Okay. It's, I'm, I'm
0: bad to. at chapter verse, but you know what? The John didn't write those numbers anyway, so right. <laughs> it doesn't matter that right. much. Uh, but when, we, when we're introduced to this concept in, in the, John's Revelation, it's specifically contrasted to the Mark of the Lamb. And it's funny because we, we look at the mark of the beast with fear and we're like, I yes. don't want this mark. I don't want this tattoo or, or, yes. or, or scar or whatever it's going to be. We're very concerned. But then we don't look at the mark of the lamb in the same way. Because if the mark of the beast is a physical mark, we should view the mark of the lamb as a physical mark. And, and personally, I, well, and most people who believe the mark of the beast is a physical mark do believe the mark of the lamb is spiritual. And I, I would agree that it's a spiritual mark on us. And I think then it follows that, that Satan's parody of that. The mark of the beast would also be some sort of spiritual mark. But is it, yeah, I'll, I'll, I kind of joke. It's funny because the mark of the beast, what's described as being the number 666, which then we, um, I mean, some people are like, it means Nero. Some people are like, does it mean something else? Is it literal? Is it literally going to be these numbers? Is it going to be like like when barcodes came out, that like every barcode actually says 666 or You've seen it like the monster energy can, the M, they're like, it's actually three sixes in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> Never
1: heard that one. Oh, it's there's oh, like we man. see it
0: everywhere. But then the the mark of the lamb is really described as the is the name of Jesus and God on, yeah. on your head. And we don't have Yahweh Yeshua tattooed on our our foreheads. But that there's these sort of things that I was just like, okay, I need to look deeper. I need to look deeper yeah. in it. And um yeah, I was kind of you got into a little bit of why this specifically matters to you, but I'm wondering if you could walk through your your process. Like we've already shown your shown your hand that we know you're post millennial, but what yeah. was the process? Because I think I think you mentioned already that you didn't start mm-hmm. post millennial. I, I
1: did not. Uh, two years ago, I would have said I'm pr- I might be on mill, but uh, I don't even know the difference. I just know. I know what I don't like and what I don't really believe or don't yeah. really think about this, but I don't really know what I do think. Um, and my my process was very much um, I should find out during this COVID time because if 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 this is reality, I I, I should be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I felt very under uh, educated uh, in my knowledge of what the difference was between kind of the three views and so that's really where it started um and then i came across uh it would be a number of books some of them are are stacked there yeah that were quite helpful in providing like uh not not this this is my view and the the other views are idiots i wanted something that like could actually represent what someone mm-hmm. thinks. There's a book, they're called the, like the Four Views. And uh, what they do is they give um, writers from each viewpoint an opportunity to write their position in pretty compact form. And then they have the other three writers write, each write responses of why they agree or disagree. Mm-hmm. And it's all very congenial and it's not argument argumentative, Um, It's like, well, I I agree here. I agree here. I I don't really agree here. I don't really agree here. And so I I began to see that there's actually not a huge variety of beliefs, um, but there are some very, very important distinctives. I saw that it really boils down a lot to interpretive methods. Um, Honestly, the biggest one being... You know, do I take the Bible literally? I actually just preached about this so mm. I, I can safely say, um, I don't think the Bible, every book of the Bible is intended to be taken literally. I think if you said, I take the Bible literally, a few of the authors would say, oh, that's a big mistake. Mm. I didn't mean this literally. I meant for you to understand the symbolism. Books like Zachariah, um, yeah. even some of the poetry and imagery, in the Psalms, um, mm. particularly Revelation, um, where there is clearly imagery, like, I mean, my starting point was always like, you don't actually believe, what if you say you take the Bible literally, you don't think Jesus is a lamb, right? Yeah. Like, you think he's, that. like, there's something behind the, what a sheep is that's that's helps us understand something that's really abstract and, and brings it a little more concrete. Of course everyone's like, no, of course I don't. That you know, only yeah. weirdos would think that he's actually a lamb. I'm like, well the mark of the beast and the lamb are in the same conversation. Mm-hmm. So how do you decide this one's literal, this one's symbolic? And I really felt like I already went in going, I want to treat revelation at least consistent all the way through if it's If it's symbolic in some areas, I want to kind of carry that all the way through. I've come to realize there are parts of revelation that aren't symbolic mm-hmm. um, mainly the at least the the chapters two and three um, yeah. and maybe chapter one, where John said like <laughs> this generation he wasn't talking symbolically mm-hmm. um, and and again, my disagreements come there uh primarily, so That was my personal journey. Um, I began to realize very quickly in the process that how you understand in particular Matthew chapter 24 will radically affect the way you read Revelation. So the first step was really seeing that Matthew 24 happened. Mm -hmm. Um, That the process is Jesus' disciples are asking him, they're walking through. And they're seeing this great temple and they say, look at how great the temple is, Jesus. Don't you agree? And Jesus said, actually, this is going to be torn down. Mm -hmm. And then they say, when will that happen? And what goes along with that? Two kind of follow-up questions. And he walks through, typically, what we would refer to as stuff that's still going to happen. Yeah. However, I find it really hard to believe that they would write down something that they said, oh, you mean we just have to write this down for someone who's going to live 2,000 years from now? It just didn't make sense to me. It had to connect at the very least it had to connect with where they were at and What
0: what challenged me me on that on the Olivet Discourse too is is specifically um, he's saying this temple is going to be destroyed and there is currently no temple I believe the the, um, Dome of the Rock is on the the place where the temple was right now. And I know there are efforts to build another temple going on in Israel and stuff, but it's, do I take that if he says this temple is going to be destroyed. And since he said that the temple has been destroyed, do I then believe that that was the fulfillment of his prophecy? Or am I going, no, he actually meant a third temple after that. And I think that that was one for me where I was like, okay, I need to start reevaluating what I believe. And I think that's another one where one, there are people who, who, who I, I know who, who do believe that is like, there's a third temple and have a really solid, like thought out, like could draw you diagrams and stuff of, of how it all makes sense. But I think the average person doesn't even know that what they hold to is dependent on, on that. On that. they don't know that that's part of their, they don't know that that's part framework. of it.
1: So that's why I say that was kind of the big one. Is a decision about Matthew 24. And there's a couple of verses in there in particular, one of them being uh, that's where the left behind comes in. Mm -hmm. Ironically, I I again read it in its context. And then when you start to read some of the parables that follow immediately, you realize, oh, these parables actually have an eschatological impact that you can't really interpret them. Mm -hmm. Parable of Talents, parable of 10 virgins in particular can't really interpret them without a position on eschatology. That's why I've been so confused about some of these parables for my whole life. But then Jesus, and as I read Matthew 24, by the way, actually the way it's written is you want to be left behind. Mm -hmm. And uh, those who are faithful are the ones that get to be left behind well, anyone's unfaithful, particularly in those parables, is cast out. That's always the the language. Mm-hmm. So the faithful people are not taken away ever. They're always allowed to stay. And it's the unfaithful people that are cast out. So, you know, yeah. marriage wedding feast is 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 right in there. And it's like, you can come in and those who don't belong here are cast out. So it's like the whole... The uh, trajectory of those parables is you want to be one of those who are left behind. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, how do we get this idea that being left behind is the bad thing? Well, that's because if you have just just that tiny piece of the rapture, which is, comes from Thessalonians, mm-hmm. and it's the only time in Scripture it shows up. And you read that into it, then you have to kind of interpret that. Is that
0: the the phrasing "We will meet him in the air"?
1: We will meet him in the air. Yeah, but so again, some one, simple explanations for that.
0: Well, and I think that's something that uh, when I first heard someone say "I don't believe in a rapture," I was like,
1: "Yeah, exactly." What? What? I thought like, it scripture.
0: Like, yeah. Well, it, it, the way I've sort of put it since is I say. Well, it's not, I don't not believe in the rapture. It's just the rapture, as I understand it, because it's the rapture being taken up, is, some, is just something else. Yeah. It's, it's what happens after you're taking up, right?
1: Well, and, and again, there's, there's places where that word is used, and one of them actually is in the parable of the prodigal son, where the um, the father goes out to meet the son and then returns down the pathway in the same way that you maybe you're sitting in your home, you see your son and you run out to meet him, mm-hmm. and then you walk with him back to your home. Yeah. That's how that word is used to describe. Him. And I was like, Oh, so there is like a, a meeting him, but it's because Jesus is returning and you're coming with him, not you're meeting him, and he's like, Let's, let, let's. You know, let's get out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. There's like, we meet him and return with him to the redeemed earth. So that I, I know I'm, I'm skipping a lot of things, but the big one in Matthew that got me was Jesus saying, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. Mm-hmm. So who was he talking about? And a lot of the dispensational premillennialists will say, um... He was talking about the generation that saw those things. So I would say, in other words, even though he said this generation, he meant something completely different than this generation. However, when you say Jesus is returning soon, you don't want me to interpret that soon could be at any time, but it could be a thousand years from now. No, you want me to take you seriously, but you don't want to take that particular passage or even that verse where Jesus clearly says this generation will not pass away until these things happen. And what happens 40 years later, the fall of, of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, almost exactly a generation later. Mm-hmm. Once I grapple with that, I realized, oh, I think there are some things in terms of eschatology and then Revelation picks up a lot of that same language that have already happened. Hmm. And, and so I began to really grapple with that at that point. Yeah. It was Matthew kind of 24. Um, I, again, when you talk about temple stuff, that all comes from Ezekiel 40 to 48. And um, I've studied Ezekiel recently, especially in its context. And I just don't think there's any way you can think that somehow Ezekiel prophesied, saw this, and then skipped like 3,000 years or 2,000 years or whatever it is Mm. of people and it's talking about the temple that's going to come. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Mm. Um, The very definition of a prophet is someone who says something that comes true. Why would you write down the words of someone who says something but it doesn't come true? That's not a prophet. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a false prophet. That's the definition of false prophet. So they recorded those things, and they thought Ezekiel had value because the things that Ezekiel prophesied came true. Mm. Not were going to come true. It wasn't like today where it's like a prophet can say anything he wants, even though it doesn't come true. It's like,
0: no. Do you see the early COVID? Yeah. And I can't believe the number of like pastor prophets that made false prophecies in early COVID that are still somehow pastoring churches right now
1: and I don't understand how they still have jobs as prophets like isn't that like that's what a prophet does like you only had one job yeah. Is to prophesy, you know, to say something that would happen when you get it so wrong, and and you know what? That's that's the amazing thing about uh, like a lot of the dispensational stuff comes out of Hal Lindsey's book. Now I read it, um, and I gave it a one star on Goodreads because there wasn't anything lower. Mm. I actually said. This is badly written, incredibly poorly researched, and by the way, he's so far off on his prophecies, and yet so many people still take him seriously. I'm like, why? Everyone who's prophesied that Jesus is coming back, anyone who's done it, has been wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a few out there who are still looking forward to it. But I was like, from the pattern that I see so far, no one's got it right. So, kind of history's on my side there. Mm-hmm. Um. But then I began to look a little bit more carefully at Revelation um, and, and take, take the approach that perhaps it's possible that this is actually describing something that will happen in very short order. Because the, John says at the very beginning, this is a prophecy. Yeah. Let me go back to the definition of prophecy again something that someone says is going to happen and does. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a prophet. How could this be a legitimate prophecy if it was going to happen? They just, mm-hmm. they, they weren't, they didn't take, like, not all the apostles wrote things. Yeah. And not all of the the writings of those apostles would have made it in. And that's one thing I don't think that would have got by anyone. It's like, it, it's, it's, the time is near. Um, he made it known, gave him to show, sorry, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Does that mean soon or not? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you want to take the Bible literally, that should say it is going to happen soon. And then he writes to churches that are actually existed at the time. Yeah, which. I don't understand how you wouldn't, You wouldn't say at the very least it applies to those who are there. Like it Mm -hmm. was, it it helped them understand it. They weren't like, "Oh, this is for like two thousand years from now when Apache helicopters are going to come."
0: Yeah, but that so that was wouldn't even make sense. Example: So one of my classes, and I don't think it was a writings of John class that I took, and I don't think the professor even had like like pushed a stance. He just wanted us to be widely Mm -hmm. researched. But one of the big points he made was that in all of scripture, when we read scripture, we we understand the context, who it was written to. Mm-hmm. Because it's written for That's us, right. but it wasn't written right. j- to us, kind That's of. right. Right? And Re- the, John's revelation was written to be understood by and encourage the church at that time. So, when they read this, they went, ah, uh, I'm encouraged. Yes. And then when we're like, it's actually apache helicopters which is the the hornet with the lion's head is that where what, what, where they make that connection i actually don't know i, I just know i a, tried a her-
1: desperately to forget it so yeah
0: because my professor specifically mentioned apache helicopters too he's like yeah. so nobody in you know this time read this and imagined an apache helicopter because they would have had no concept of that or it's-
1: russia <laughs>
0: yeah like honestly well and that's uh it's a it doesn't mean cause like in my, like my a and, and I don't know, I waffle a bit, <laughs> but, you should. Uh, but, uh, there are, are concepts where I think it's possible for like, cause like, does the spirit of Rome still exist? Yeah. Cause I believe the spirit of Rome still exists. I believe yes. that, um, the, like the spirit of Babylon, that even right. though Babylon doesn't exist, that the spirit of Babylon Absolutely. does and that those take different forms. It's <laughs> an
1: excellent metaphor for, you know, kind of city of God, city of man mm-hmm. sort of idea. Absolutely. Which is why, uh, m- maybe I'm interrupting you here, but why should we look at it? Because there is um, help. Kind of, we, we do see cycles of this. So that that's where all millennial, I think, is helpful. And again, this is where it's really close. I find some people are like, I'm all millennial. And then they'll say sometimes, like, typically that actually is something that post millennials believe. Mm-hmm. But there's things within kind of post millennialism that um, all millennials actually want to believe, but they actually have to sometimes go a little bit beyond it just being spiritual, one of them being uh, a redeemed earth, a redeemed yeah. new heavens and new earth. Okay, that's a physical thing. Well, the problem is when you spiritualize and see everything as spiritual, then that's just a spiritual um, destination, right? No, it's physical. Well, you've left the spiritual amillennial mm-hmm. uh, symbolic and you've actually planted it and rooted it. And I think for me, that was where I stood was, man, I, I think there's, there's clear evidence in scripture from a redeemed earth, not just earth as it was originally, but better. Yeah. Much like reclaimed wood made into a table is often better, prettier, more awesome mm-hmm. than its original mm-hmm. was. And that's kind of what put me ultimately in that post-millennial camp, um, which ended up being most hopeful, actually. Uh, and everyone okay. says that it's yeah. most hopeful. Most people are like, I want to believe post-millennialism because it's, it's far and away the most hopeful. Yeah. Um, and, and in this, one of the questions that's often asked is I can ask you, do you think the world is getting worse or do you think it's getting better?
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, so what do you think? That's exactly where I wanted to head with this. But what's the passage creation groans for redemption? Where, where's that? Uh,
1: sounds like Corinthians. But yeah. I don't. I don't.
0: It's funny. Is I should know down. because the reason why I'm thinking of it is that I've preached it. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, and that's something that I think it, is very compelling, and it also kind of highlights where I and a lot of people get hung up on post millennialism. Is is like is are things getting better or are they getting worse, and one of the reasons why I kind of float in amillennialism is because studying history and I'm all about church history. I'm really bad at remembering the dates, but following the flow and the change is like, if I ever do a PhD, I want to do it uh, on some aspect of history. Um, You can see cyclical nature of things. You can see the church being persecution beyond what we could imagine to then being like dominant to then recessing into persecution and then being dominant. And, and you see all these sorts of things and that's where a millennial view is basically. It's actually kind of stands same. It's cyclical. Yeah. Yes, but <laughs>
1: and, I, I I think it's actually the strength of the a millennial or amillennial millennial position mm-hmm. is the cyclical nature that you you see in um, in and throughout history. Like you do have these rise and falls. You do have these clear. You know, like mm-hmm. was was the beast Rome? Was the beast? Um, Greece was the, you know, was, is the beast Russia? Like, well, yeah, I think like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Is it, uh, is it um, China? Uh, Like you can, you can make all these speculations and I think you can make cases for them because I think you're exactly right. Yeah. They inhabit uh, these world powers that are, have gone bad, inhabit the very qualities that we, we see in Scripture, And that's why I think sometimes it's a little on the vague side. Like I do think Revelation's talking about Nero, but I also think it might be talking about Afghanistan mm. um, or the Holocaust. Like it's, it's, it's not difficult to make those, um, and, and people should, th- that's what makes scripture valuable is every generation can apply and see its relevance for today. But again, to go back to that, what relevance? To provide hope. Mm-hmm. Not discouragement in that. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to the post millennial is I'm really um I'm I really strongly believe that this physical world doesn't just fail to exist or get burned up. Yeah. And I I say physical because it is not a spiritual resurrection that happens. In First Corinthians fifteen, it is a physical body. There's no doubt. Like Paul makes uh, pains, like it's a long chapter about what this looks like, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Yes, it, your body, your new body will look kind of like your old, but it'll be totally transformed. But it will, y- you'll be able to recognize that it was your body, yeah. just just like Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits." of this resurrection. That's that's essentially what Colossians says, right? Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So he is the first example of what this looks like. So he looks like Jesus, but they didn't really recognize him until he revealed it to them. So there was something familiar, but brand new and and yeah. majestic about it. So... I'm like, how, how could you have a physical resurrection in a purely spiritual place? Like one of the crazy things I'm thinking about is say, I, I think you believe in Jesus was resurrected. Yeah. Okay. So he had, but it, with the physical body.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can rant about that song. Jesus has no body now, but ours. That is right. what awful theology. Okay. That is
1: awful <laughs> theology. Come to think of it. However, where is he? Physically. Mm-hmm. Where is he? I don't know. Yeah. But he's physically somewhere. Yeah. Like maybe this is what black holes are. Who knows? <laughs> like it's it's fun to kind of think about, mm-hmm. but I'm like, he's in he's in existence somewhere physically. Maybe we can't see them him and he's around. I, I don't know how that works. I just know that he is in a physical body. He didn't return to a spiritual state hmm. when he ascended. He did not change out of his um, spirit or his physical body, and then as a spirit rise up. Like they saw him rise up, they saw his physical body walk through doors. That's why he actually said to them, "Hey, give me that fish. I'll show you. I'm not Casper the ghost that's just gonna eat it, and you know the the, yeah. the fish is gonna drop to the ground." They're like, "I'm showing you. This is what it looks like." So, I've got those things. I've got um, this idea that. Uh, there's a new heavens and a new earth that there's absolutely no biblical evidence that God's going to destroy the earth. Um, there is somehow uh, an inference of some sort of destruction in, in Second Peter, maybe. And so there is that. But again, it's kind of vague. So I'm going, okay, Jesus is returning. He's going to reign with us on this earth. And that's why I'm post-millennial. Hmm. And that's where my hope is. Like my, my, my hope you talk about where this should ultimately land personally is, um, it changes everything that I do here, everything. Because actually with the post millennial view, tell me that you don't at least want this to be true, Cody. Do you not want to start or, or finish or be part of finishing what you've started on earth? Hmm. Have you ever wondered about the disconnect is like, why bother putting time and effort into, you know, the physical realm here? Because I'm just leaving anyways. What if that wasn't the case? What if whatever you started, you come and you return with Jesus, with a redeemed soul, a redeemed mind, and a redeemed body, life, and actually you get to, with him, face to face finish what you started. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, don't we have this insatiable desire to finish something? Like how many of us are frustrated by our lives of, yeah, I get to start it, but I don't, don't get to see it to the end. Even as a pastor, sometimes that's frustrating because what you start when you work in someone's life is you never get to see the end. What if you did? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that bring hope (laughs) Wouldn't that make you want to go, oh, well, I'm going to invest as much as I can. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what would happen if you actually understood that. Now, I'll go back to my biblical references. Did you know that that's where those um, parables show up? Is immediately following Matthew 24, is that parable of the talents, which is exactly about investing in something that you didn't deserve in the first place. And Jesus bringing into account. And he doesn't basically go, you know, with the parable of the talents, he gives one 10, one five, and one one. And we always kind of focus in on the, you know, oh, it's not about what you have, it's about what you do with it. But notice at the end of that parable, the one person who basically thought that Jesus or the master was ungracious, Jesus says, hey, take away what he didn't want anyway. And what does he do? He gives it to the other guy to be Taken away? No. (laughs) To keep going. Yeah. Like he returns and he gets more, not less. Those who are faithful get more. That's why the parable says, he who has, even what he has will be taken away. It's like, if you don't really want this world, if you don't want to return with Jesus and redeem the world, you don't have to. All you have to do is choose Satan. But if you choose Jesus, you get to come back and you get more, not Mm -hmm. less. And then actually that parable ends um, in a way that a lot of people don't realize. It's like, what happens to the servant? He's cast away where there's gnashing of teeth. Like that's his final destiny. It's like, you don't, want, you don't want to steward the gifts and the, and the world that Jesus designed. You don't want to be part of this plan. You don't have to. There's a place where nobody will ever thrust Jesus in your face again. And that's what hell is, ultimately, is people who just don't want anything to do with God. They want to be left alone. And Jesus said, I don't want you to go there, but I I wanted you to participate in the renewed earth. But I'm actually um, willing to let you have your own way if you really want it. So can you see how I, I, I see very holistic connections? So I again, I got a brother who is no longer on this world, but his soul is somewhere. But one of the things that gives me so much hope, Cody, is going, there's going to be a day mm-hmm. where that body that we buried in Red Deer is going to meet back up with the soul of my brother and he's going to come back and see all of the things that he started, and he's going to be part of the redeemed creation. Hmm. That's going to then make this kingdom into something that is just overwhelmingly amazing. I mean, this is aw- that's awesome. Hmm. I love that thought. So, like again, kind of to make make it very pragmatic, perhaps is like, okay, so I have three legitimate views of eschatology. Man, I'm choosing the one that seems fun. Yeah. And amazing, not the one that really freaks me out or the one that just says, Oh, well, maybe you're in a low period in, in yeah. history and not a high period. Like that do you see how like I, I actually I've watched debates between three, and I know I'm 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 going long here, but I've watched debates between three people and they always say about the post-millennialist, We wished we could believe what you believe. Yeah. We want that to be the way. And I'd say, why not? It's if it's a legitimate view. Why not? I've found so much biblical evidence. I've found so many of these parables that suddenly come sharply into focus. If we're returning to a physical earth with a physical body. Yeah. Renewed. But you have to actually try that on. And once you do, I, I think you'll find that there's there's so much there because the, the, the famous chapter on... Uh, resurrection I, I never figured this one out this one never made sense to me and by the way I preached 1 Corinthians 15 two years ago before mm-hmm. right at the end of the chapter on the resurrection of the body and how important this is and what it looks like what does Paul say he says therefore like because of this my beloved brothers be steadfast right
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, be like long winded essentially yeah. keep going be consistent, like don't give up, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, like invest, invest, invest. Why? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Hmm. So all of this bodily resurrection stuff, all of this stuff and this return, that's what helps you work today. Yeah. That's what Paul's saying. That's why you can keep going. That's why you can be steadfast. That's why you can be immovable. That's why, because what we're doing right now actually has eternal implications that maybe one day we will see this little flow chart and Jesus will be hate. Remember when you sat down with Cody and talked about eschatology? Mm-hmm. And and you know, this one person had this questions, Can I show you the journey that it took them on? Like wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, yeah that's what eternity is essentially gonna be like. That's why it's gonna take so long because there's so many of these little rabbit trails. And I like I I gush so much about this stuff because you can clearly tell it's affected me. Hmm. But come on. Who doesn't want that kind of a hope?
0: Yeah. Who
1: doesn't want that kind of a joy? How could that not be helpful? Um and the and the, the last personal thing is um, I actually have struggled a good portion of my life with suicide. Hmm. And I think it's because I just I just don't I was like, if if it's just going to end anyways, why don't I end it soon? And I I tell you, when when my eschatology changed, that is the only thing that has changed my suicidal thoughts in my 47 years. Hmm. It was remarkable. It was like overnight, I suddenly went from Jesus get me out of here to Jesus give me more time because I got a lot of things I want to invest in before you return. Hmm. So that practically... I was like, it eliminated suicidal thoughts. I'm not going to say I don't have thoughts that occasionally come in. But what pulls me out of that, I was like, I don't want to leave too soon. Mm. I'm not doing anything. I'm basically cutting myself off from potential investment. Yeah. Well, again, this is why it's so hopeful, Cody. This is why it's important to me. I'm not saying that everyone has to change their minds eschatologically, but when you compare it to the left behind, come on. Hmm. This is like feast versus like diet pills. Yep. That's how I see it. It's, it's a no-brainer.
0: I feel like you anticipated my closing question was going to be, um, so based on a post-millennial eschatology, what should Christians be Expecting What are we anticipating? How are we living? And you kind of touched on yeah. that. Is there anything you want to...
1: Not really, um, other than to just press home that same exact thing about um, eschatology. Uh, 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 a robust eschatology is intended on rooting you in the here and now as mm-hmm. much as it in the future. In fact, it provides that great balance. So I would only add... Paul actually says something along these lines when he says, I don't know if I'm going to be with you. I would prefer to be face to face with the Lord. I believe that is 2 Corinthians 5, 6, somewhere in there. I just read this. And he said, it's better to be with the Lord, but for your sake, I'm to be with you. So he's like, if I'm here on this earth, I'm preaching Jesus. Mm -hmm if i'm not on this earth it's a lot better yeah but he was like willing to forgo that because he knew that his investment would um, would be even more enjoyable his return with jesus would ultimately be even more enjoyable and i actually think that helped me recently make sense of of paul's weird third heaven experience like i think Honestly, what happened is Jesus let Paul in on what this kind of looked like. And he was like, I don't really get to talk about this, but trust me, it's pretty amazing when you start to understand um, what, what's actually going to happen. Um, and there's there's other things I could go into, but it I, with heaven and whatnot... Um, one of the things that changes then actually, is heaven becomes not your destination point in life. It actually becomes the intermediate state by which we uh, we who have died um, are waiting mm-hmm. with Christ to return. So one of again, one of the really hopeful things is that there's there, there's a possibility that my brother knows exactly what's going on with my life. And he's peering, so to speak, into the darkness and sees vaguely, like, because he's like, I get to return mm. and, and see that stuff that Trev is doing. And it fires me up. Mm. Um, so I think that's one of the primary things is like robust eschatology does not take you away from this world prematurely. Or absent-mindedly, It actually roots you deeply in the world and gives you um, something to look forward to at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. It, it's a perfect mix for me.
0: All right. Well, okay. Long. I know. Two last questions. No, it's good. I don't know. I don't know what the runtime is yet. I think this will be one episode, though. But... Two last questions, quick list style. If someone wants to learn more about this, about post millennial or about Asquithian G yeah. in general,
1: that book right there, Marcellus Kick uh, is dynamite. It's actually pretty old, uh, 1971. It is essentially the post millennial view um, explained. I- I'm not even finished it um because the, the first like 50 pages were so valuable mm-hmm. but you can see it on the time eschatology of victory it it just sees jesus is winning in the end that one's helpful um the puritan hope uh, actually explains that uh, the, the puritans so anyone who's interested in puritans um you, you know you'll already know this but um one of the interesting things is that the Puritans basically were a result of, like, a massive revival in England. Mm. It was a return to holiness, and it was a return to, like, gospel preaching. But accompanied with that is uh, Puritans were all post-millennial. Yeah. Um, this one's helpful to get a uh, side-by-side view. Um, I've given this one out, The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. There's another one by another guy. Um, I can't remember offhand. Um, uh, I think his name is Glenn. I would say that's a good resource of someone yep. who's basically letting uh, th- this one lets the people who believe it speak for themselves. The other one is more a summary by someone else. Mm. So I really like this one because I let the dispensational premillennialist speak for himself. Yeah. Um, and, and watch even how uh, what whether. What what are some of the reasons why and some of the high points? Like, again, the, the, I think I read the pre-millennial position like yesterday or the day before. And I was like, oh, man, there's just a lot of helpful stuff here that yeah. I also agree with.
0: Yeah. Um, podcast, movie series.
1: Podcast or movie series? Like, what
0: do I? Is, is there, a, is there a, a, actually, I mean, I usually ask people about what they've been watching or listening to hey, you know what? Let's pitch it that way. Eschatology aside, podcasts you recommend besides this one, obviously?
1: Uh, yeah, of course this one. Um, I really like uh, the Thinking Fellows. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of Lutheran guys um, who sit around the table, drink whiskey and smoke pipes, I think. You can barely hear this pipe smoking in the background. Yeah. Um, but the idea like reminds me of Definitely like C.S. Lewis inklings, so it has mm-hmm. that feel to it. It's well produced, very well produced. Um, the conversations are really good. Sometimes they're a little Lutheran for me, and so <laughs> it's it's like, yeah, that's fine. Um, but they really do understand the gospel and believe it. I'm a big Luther fan, so they did a lot of stuff on Luther and and, and like they're all brilliant mm-hmm. guys. They're super smart guys. But they're very warm and. uh very uh, real so I like that I do like um, I like the gospel in life hmm. which is uh, sermons by Tim Keller I've been deeply affected by his ministry and his preaching has affected mine greatly yep. other than the length of them <laughs> um, I would say uh, one that I'm finding really interesting is life and books and everything yeah that's a listen good one. to that one too you listen to that one and then there's another one by one guy. I think it's called Gospel Bound. Okay. Colin Hansen's in that one as well. Um, but he's in that with Justin Taylor, who's an editor, and some other guy I can't remember offhand. Colin was Justin Taylor. I can't remember the third guy. Yeah. But it's a great conversation between the three of them. They're, they're in three, like, really um, influential, kind of conservative evangelical areas And they're all good friends and have some really interesting takes and conversations about life.
0: Cool. If people want to hear more from you, (laughs) do you have socials? I feel like you don't. (laughs) You
1: are right. I am on Facebook. I will probably not return your message. There's there's like 2016 birthday wishes that I've never responded to that my wife always says, you have a bunch of birthday (laughs) wishes. And I'm like, I do. Um, I'll use it like at a conference where I get creeped by someone and respond that way, but mm. it's really inconsistent. Um, I, I've honestly, best, the best way is to like talk to you and get my number. <laughs> right. I'm, I, I'm on Instagram, but I'm only on there to see what's on Instagram. Yeah,
0: fair enough. That's me and Twitter. Um, what and when you finally get around to making your own podcast i'll be sure to uh to push it sure. on ours as well we can start a network
1: maybe we're maybe we're starting one together yeah
0: stay posted for our new uh, we'll podcast see. network but yeah anyways thanks so much for t- yeah. taking this much time it was a long time it you was probably a long time. want to go eat dinner with your family but eventually thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here and uh thanks to everyone who's listening um yeah will catch you next week